Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with modern-day New York City jazz pianist Andy Milne. He delved into his latest 2018 CD, The Seasons of Being, that showcases a 10-piece ensemble featuring DAP Theory. He's a former student of Oscar Peterson and was the center of the M-Bass Collective as a core member of saxophonist Steve Coleman's bands, as well as performing with Cassandra Wilson and Greg Osby. He's a fearless, versatile explorer, pianist, and composer with a distinct and respected voice at the heart of New York's creative scene for over 20 years, collaborating with dancers, visual artists, poets, and musicians spanning jazz, classic, pop, folk, and world music. So get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Andy, thanks for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz, man. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So let's talk about your latest CD with Dap Theory, The Seasons of Being. There's a lot of animals on it. It, it, it sounds like a narrative on this 10-track uh, album. Talk to me about how you constructed this and kind of the artistic forces that went into this project. Well, I mean, it's a pretty, it's sort of an involved kind of um, backstory in a way because, and I don't mean, I didn't mean to pun there, but I, I started, I had a lot of problems with my lower back. Cutting, cutting to the chase, I, one of the one of the ways in which I sort of sought relief was through um, homeopathic healing, and in the process of doing that, I started thinking about parallels. A homeopath kind of understands a human and their physical and emotional well-being and state of being and how I might look at musicians and look at just the process and, and for, for composition, for improvisation, using those same techniques or similar techniques. I mean, I'm not a homeopath. And it, and it, and it kind of intersects with a place where when I'm, uh, years ago, I brought an arrangement in and one of the musicians said, um, not, I said, well, I've got a section here, I want you to solo in this section. And he says, I'm not really feeling it. And I thought, why are, you, why are you being so difficult? Are you being difficult? I thought this would be perfect for you. And so I thought about it, and I thought, well, geez, you know, I've been on gigs where someone has said, hey, do you want to take a solo here? And I frankly didn't want to. But my professionalism led me to sort of saying yes, because, you know, sometimes you just do what the leader needs you to do. But I thought, well, I wonder if there's something similar to why I didn't want to do this that was based on some other purpose, uh, other sort of background other than just I wasn't in the mood. Like, what? That's sort of a short stop. So I started thinking about it from the point of view of homeopathy and uh, how homeopath kind of understands the person. And so I decided I wanted to write music that I could kind of optimize the, con the context for each improviser based upon sort of studying them and understanding their emotional lineage. So... You asked a fairly weighted uh, question without maybe realizing it, but, but that was the background to uh, wanting to construct the music for this recording and the, kind of how I began the investigating writing the music. Are you happy with how it turned out? Yes. yes. It, it involved studying each person and taking information about them that they were comfortable giving me, but in a way that they wouldn't necessarily realize they were revealing, you know, huge swaths of their, of their inner sort of secrets. But, I mean, these are individuals that I know in many cases very well personally and certainly professionally. And so the information that I got was kind of revealing even though I know them well. But then I took that information and I used it with, uh, the, with the consultation with a homeopath to understand them in a, dip in a deeper kind of different way. And then I wrote to sort of uh, match those uh, pathologies that were kind of revealed. 
Okay. With this album, it's obviously a personal testimony, and so is you know, most music. And my question is this. You've had nine-plus albums as a side man, but I want to kind of focus in on your leader work and ask you, do you see each album as kind of a stamp of where you're at in time or a successive vision of your evolution or your journey as an artist with your artistic vision? How do you see those? Well, I mean, there's sort of a micro-universe because, you know, each album is definitely a reflection of where I'm at in an artistic journey. Sometimes that journey might seemingly have, um, you know, a longer arc in terms of points of connectivity, but mostly it's 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 kind of a, a reflection of what, what, what my interests are at or what my development is sort of bringing me to want to share at that point in time, more so than, say, a longer arc that I'm, you know, masterminding from, like, point A to sort of, Point Z, but but certainly from the point of view of like you know in this in this in this case like this recording it's def- it's a very much a reflection of what uh, where I've been at uh, you know personally and artistically. Let's go back to the beginnings of your life. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, and I was raised in a small town called Kincardine, but mostly in in, in Toronto, Ontario, and. Uh, I lived there until I was in my mid-twenties, at which point I, I moved to Montreal, and then I moved to New York. Cool. So how did you get into music in the beginning, and what kind of jazz really pulled you into that world? Everybody in my family took piano lessons, and so I started taking piano lessons when I was about seven, and I was studying classical piano. And around that time, my brother-in-law, who... Um, to sort of was the first person to kind of expose me to other forms of music, and he bought me a few recordings. And you know, it was like a Oscar Peterson, who, of course, growing up as a young kid in Canada, you kind of can't miss from the point of view of, of, of jazz. Um, so some of my early recordings were Oscar Duke Ellington, um, Les McCann, and Eddie Harris. I remember he gave me that uh, Swiss Movement recording when I was quite young. So. I, I started getting exposed to a little bit of jazz thanks to my brother-in-law, and then, you know, slowly but surely was was um, seeking out teachers that could kind of help me, you know, contextualize and demystify because I didn't really have I didn't I wasn't really sure what to do other than just play along with records. So talk to me about some of those teachers and mentors in your life that really kind of opened up the gates of music to you and helped you understand it. The first a couple of really big, you know, impactive teachers I had uh, were when I was in university in Toronto at York University and I was studying with uh, a gentleman by the name of John Gittens, who was, you know, a great jazz theorist and also a sociologist at the same time. I took, I took uh, lots of courses with John and learned a lot from him in music and in, in social science. And then the other big one I had in university was a saxophonist composer named David Mott, who is an American that's lived in Canada for probably since the late 60s, early 70s. And he a fantastic composer, but really uh, was a you know exponent of, of, of the proponent, I should say, of, of um, I don't want to call it avant-garde, but I'll say freer structures than, than what maybe people align with in more straight-ahead circles. Just an adventurous, adventurous and really welcoming spirit, and so he was very supportive 
and encouraging all through my younger, you know, period there when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then even later on as I sort of kind of sought him out for support um, and guidance. And then when I, before, you know, getting ready to move to New York and around the time I was moving to New York, Steve Coleman became a big mentor for me because he, I met him and at a time where I was just ripe for another perspective, you know, I ended up working in his band for about a decade and made, you know, several recordings and really kind of helped uh, bring my name to, to people's awareness, in, in, in the, you know, globally and, and, and sort of shaped a lot of things in terms of how I was able to sort of set the bar pretty high for myself uh, conceptually. So Steve was a big, certainly huge influence. And then Muhal Richard Abrams, who we unfortunately, you know, lost just a, just a year ago, was uh, also a really massive mentor uh, for me when I moved to New York. Didn't spend tons of time with, with, with Muhal, but everything that I, all the time I did spend with him and conversations we had on the phone were always very uh, meaningful and, and again, just very supportive and eye-opening. So I, I, I have, you know, the fortune of those kinds of musical mentorships in my life that have, I guess, made it, you know, kind of a pretty strong imprint on how I teach and how I mentor because that's a big part of my life too. And I can't, you know, go through a day without recognizing the sort of weight and impact of some of these individuals. Uh, there's a certain kind of, uh, of acceptance of the struggle that I, uh, certainly with Muhal, I remember t- having conversations with Muhal that really helped uh, me contextualize the struggle. It seems as though things have worked out pretty well. Twenty plus years in New York, and your you, you your art goes into so many different realms, from dancers to visual artists to poets, musicians, and you know in that music realm, you know you got classic pop, folk, and world music. My question is this. Obviously, things have worked out with you coming to New York, but in the beginning, what was it like to be kind of in this cauldron of creative, uh, kind of the apex of creativity, I would say, in the world and getting yourself established? What was that like? I think back to, you know, kind of being an incubator of creativity and, and, and just sort of experimentation. It was It was great to sort of witness, you know, because... You, you sort of don't realize that when you're in school necessarily that that's what it's going to be, and you see it around you, but you don't you don't understand it from the point of view of, of I guess a real real life um, demands. And so I think that was uh, really rewarding. Certainly being in Steve's groups and in different iterations that he had when I was in, you know traveling with him and recording with him, and sort of. Kind of, but just not 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 only with Steve, but with other artists that I was working with, and over the, you know, especially in the '90s when I was doing mostly sideman work, you know, and had had you know fewer opportunities to explore my own ideas. I had groups, but I was that, that were not the you know main focus of my output, and and sort of not you know either with my own you know you know participation or going to see. Uh, you know, rehearsals or see, you know, performances of colleagues that were doing similar things and, and other mentors that you kind of kind of realize how a lifelong and vast commitment it is to take you know, embark upon a life in, in music and being a creative artist and, and not to be taken lightly. And so that was really, you know, a huge imprint because it sort of set the bar pretty high, you know, and I and I found that was an immediate life lesson that I was 
you know, kind of resonate, was resonating for me because it was something I, it wasn't like, oh God, you gotta work hard. Like I just, like I recognized, okay, yeah, that, that, that there's, and also, but sometimes I think because, you know, when you're around people with really strong vision, with a really strong vision, it kind of, it's, it's quite intimidating because you're, 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 you're both inspired by it, but you're also kind of like, they're setting the bar really high. And so, you, when you get into the part of your life where you start working, uh, out your ideas, you've got the sort of vapors left of what you witnessed as a younger person trying to, you know, sort of reach those, those heights, not necessarily in terms of the content, but in terms of the, the, the intensity at least and, and, and the, the sophistication that might be brought to your output, you know, and how and how yeah. and how committed you want to be to that. And that, and that was that was uh, you know I still that still resonates. There's still I wouldn't say it haunts me, but it's still it's it's still sort of I feel like it still comes out, you know, or it's still it's certainly in my private moments. I think it's I still think about it from the point of view of how am I. Am I measuring up to what my mentors would have expected of me and, or what they would have Im- imprinted on me in terms of how I should expect myself to strive for, uh, you know, the moon? So the one thing that you did in 98 was formed the Quintet Gap Theory, and you've been around, obviously, for a long time on this latest album that featured me about this group and how it's kind of manifested over time. Working with this spoken word poet Kokai from DC in, 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 when I was playing in Metrics, D. Coleman, and, and um, I just really liked what he did. And it was exciting to kind of sort of try using the human voice compositionally, but in this more charged way than the, the ways I'd been using in, in the past because I'd been using singers, mostly wordless vocals, some some things with, with lyrics, but it was, it was kind of a d- different direction, and I'd been really kind of in, immersed in this world with working with Kokai a lot, so I asked him to join the band, well, it was really, it was just, I just, I guess I was reconstituting the band at that point anyway. He joined the band, and then very quickly, and somewhere in there, my friend Sean Rickman, who was helping me produce a record, suggested that I check out this fabulous young harmonica player named Gregoire Murray. And so I asked Greg Ward if he, you know, or I think Sean probably asked Greg Ward if he wanted to um, come down to D.C. where we were making this record and, and play on a, a couple tunes. And so it kind of went from, like, playing on a couple tunes to, like, almost the whole record. He really was, he was just so super enthusiastic and he played great. And he, he, he was like, he just wanted to be part of everything. So I, I said, well, maybe I'll just, you know, bring him into the mix. And so I just sort of brought him into the mix and made him part of the band. Um, even though I wasn't really practical in those days to travel with uh, four people, let alone five, so because we were just kind of getting getting going with the touring, so it, that became the band with with uh, Gregoire and Kokai and uh, the drummer at the time, Mark Prince, and, and the bass player of the band, uh, Rich Brown, who was, who was uh, from Canada, who I, I you know knew on trips that I'd gone back to visit family and do, do gigs with with other bands, so. That was sort of the unit, and then I kind of returned to having a, a vocalist, a, like a sort of conventional sung vocals in the band at, at one point in that early period when I actually had six people going on the road with the uh, vocalist Vinia Mojica, who was um, probably her biggest, uh, you know, 
sort of more infamous sort of recordings that people would know were some of the things she did with Tribe Called Quest. Um, and so she she was in the band at one point in the late 90s, and then so ended up having a pretty large ensemble for a minute, but then quickly kind of returned to the, the quintet format, which I kind of maintained pretty consistently, with the exception of the, um, kind of this new recording, really, because it's the quintet that is augmented with five guests. Um, but in, in, in between, the, the ensuing additions of the band has always been, you know, a quintet. I, I eventually, when Gregoire got too busy and was uh, getting opportunities from um, folks like Pat Matheny, I had to find somebody else because he, he wasn't going to be able to stay in the band. So I, then I shifted to saxophone, mainly soprano saxophone, because that was sort of in the same kind of range that I'd been accustomed to writing for, for harmonica. So uh, it, uh, it sort of evolved through a couple of different saxophones, and the saxophonist that's in the band now, Aaron Krasicki, I mean, he plays a lot of different woodwind instruments, so it's it, it's been an interesting evolution where it's, you know, now he hardly plays saxophone, he plays a lot of clarinet, bass clarinet, and duke, and, and, and so the, the shift has happened gradually as each person has sort of joined the band, they've brought something new, and they've brought something at least new for the band, and, and so I've just been eager to, to, you know, embrace that and write for it. And, and then, it's, as a result, the, 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 sort of the, sh- the shift, the band has shifted because of the, the, the abilities and contributions of these new members, you know. So now it's, there's some resemblance, but it's definitely changed, you know, in 20 years. Well, the one thing, too, that's interesting about your life and music is that you struck up a relationship with William Shatner in 2011 for his documentary, The Captains, and you've been a part of his, the theme Star Trek films. Talk to me about that relationship. Yeah, that was funny how that came about because it was it was through Avery Brooks, uh, the actor and musician who I've had a relationship with for a very long time. And when Shatner was doing these, uh, the first documentary that he was doing about the people that succeeded him in Captain's roles in the Star Trek franchise, he uh, needed a composer and the conversations that Shatner and Avery Brooks were having were largely improvisational around music, and that sort of led to the idea of having a score that would be improvised. And Avery said to Shatner, I've got the guy for you, and he was referring to me. So Avery called me and said, you know, would you like, to, would you be interested in doing this score for Mr. Shatner? I said, sure. And then I didn't hear about it for about a year. And then he called again and said, okay. I think it's going to happen. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, I was, uh, you know, having a conference call with the the, the, uh, the producers and and uh, with Shatner on the line, and basically they were moving quickly. And so within a couple of weeks, we'd figured everything out where we were going to do this. And I flew out to L.A. and 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 the film wasn't quite finished, but we had to enough that I could sort of demonstrate why improvising without why improvising can work and why improvising can't work at the same time. And so some of the film uh you know needed to be re- edited and revised before the, the music could really be put in place but but it was close. Um but through that you know working you know diligently for what was pretty short time. I mean I I I composed and recorded the music for the first film in about a couple of like maybe 2 days. Huh. And then, and then, 
had to mix it and then deal with edits and whatnot. But but um, from that experience, then Shatner had me on board for six or seven other films that he did after that. They were kind of in the same sort of like set, you know additional chapters from the original film, The Captains, where each 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 actor had their own had their own documentary after that. So. I did the music for those. It was kind of a very rewarding experience because I was a Star Trek fan and uh, it was fun to be able to uh, be part of a project that was kind of, uh, you know, documenting the, the, the connectivity of of the various actors and, and their lives and their and their work. And you know, sort of having to give, give, give personality to each to each uh, person, each, each character, each actor through the music that was, much different for each film, you know. The other thing about life and about learning and growing as a musician and even as a person is seeing live music, what live jazz shows have you witnessed, especially in the early years, that really were formative and big for you that you enjoyed? Oh, I think early like early years, I mean, I guess everything seems early now. I was telling some a student of mine just the other day about a concert I saw with Max Roach and Cecil Taylor um, each Back, this is like in the early 90s, they were playing outside of Columbia University. And I remember very distinctly how you know, Cecil played for 45 minutes, Max played for 45 minutes, and they played another hour together. And it was it was fascinating to witness this level of compositional ingenuity with this through line. It's like, it was no, there's nothing really got repeated, but... Not in a wasteful, gratuitous way. It was it was very thoughtful in terms of hearing a free, freely improvised performance and the, and the stamina that was you know witnessed there. It was it was that really left a mark on me in terms of the, the through line and the stamina and uh, sort of patience. So I, I I remember that concert to, to this day as, as something that was pretty profound. And I think probably other early concerts, you know, I'm sure. Seeing them a few times, but but definitely, I remember coming to New York to see uh, Dave Holland's quintet um, when Steve Coleman was in the band and um, Kevin Eubanks, I think, at that point. And that was like I I had met Steve and started studying with him, and so I was very eager to sort of know what they were doing musically. And it was just I remember it was at the knitting at the old knitting factory. I remember seeing that show and kind of being completely blown away. A bunch of my friends, we, I was living in Montreal at the time, and so a bunch of us drove down to New York to see that concert, and, you know, then I think we drove back that night afterwards, but we were, like, just, like, wired from the experience. But that, that gives me a good tapestry there, for sure. Um, you know, there's so much that's gone into your career up to this point. There's so many things, so many commissions, so many arcs, and so many things that have happened. My question, generically, is this. Are you happy with where you're at with your career and where things are going to go from here? Yeah, this is actually an exciting time. I mean, it's interesting when you, from someone on the outside looking going, oh, well, there's all these wonderful, uh, you know, uh, landmarks or, 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 you know, celebrate, you know, moments to celebrate. And, and it, 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 I don't tend to document the, the, the challenges or document the, the disappointments, right? But there's, you know, if I look at it from my perspective, and I I, I see the both I see both sides of the of, of my life in terms of what I've been able to do and what I haven't been able to do, and some of those things that I haven't been able to do, I'm still working out the kinks to either figure out how to do them or 
refashioning them to find more efficient ways and more workable ways artistically or logistically. And then the other things are things that I didn't do because maybe something that uh, I that's attributed to my own limitation or just a blind spot that I you know wasn't able to see see my way through a, a situation and so that you know my own failings if you will um, and 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 it's interesting because those things no nobody knows about those things because they you know they're not talked about uh, but they still impact. The, the the sort of trajectory, you know, I did a chapter in someone's uh, colleague's book, where it was basically I didn't write the chapter, but they wrote the chapter about me, and and it was talking about failure, you know, and the ideas of how failure is a kind of uh, important stage, and in, in, in the developer of anything, and it's, if you talk to any scientist or any developer of software, you know, any of any. Really, really, sort of like you know, in, in, endeavor of something new. Failure is a big piece of it, you know. And so these these areas in which I haven't, you know, something hasn't worked. It's still sort of a building block for for the uh, the next thing that does work and that you do talk about, you know. And, and I think for me, it's like I'm happy with where where things are. I think I have to get up every day and kind of keep soldiering on because there's lots of disappointment. I mean, even this morning before we spoke, I mean, I had, you know, had the fire I had to put out that was like, oh, this was just like, there's all these little moments where you're constantly being tested to see if your resolve is intact. And I guess the thing is, like, we hope we, we live long enough to see through our, uh, you know, our grandest uh, ambitions and, and have the, the kind of vitality to our work that we that we envision developing because sometimes we don't necessarily know precisely that the, the, the you can have a general picture of something but you can't see it through with clarity until you see it through with clarity and, and, and you can't always get that opportunity until certain things are in certain things are in alignment. I want to know this, and I know I, I made this, it wasn't necessarily a mistake, but it was a wording choice with Steve Coleman. I interviewed him, and I asked him why he loved jazz, and the, the, the term jazz is not something specifically that, you know, you want to pigeonhole this genre into, but I guess I asked generically because of the fact that we are specifically catering to the idiom of jazz on our station. My question to you is this, why do you love improvised music or jazz or however you want to term that. I love improvised music precisely because it is allowing the performer and I, and I think it, and, and that's interesting that we, we can sort of dance around the terminology but it's allowing the performer the ability to you know contribute and you know, you know make statements in that moment and it's vital, and it's in terms of having vitality. It's like having a conversation. You know, it's as, it's as important as a as a random conversation at the water cooler, a random conversation walking down the street. You know, that, that you know, at a dinner table, or you know, you go to a conference. Like these kinds of settings where some where you strike up a a dialogue, and something new is is able to sort of be given, you know, life to. You know, and I and I think. Improvised music in many forms, not just in the forms that we maybe closely associate with jazz and the jazz universe, because this improvisation exists 
in other forms of music. In fact, classical music had more improvisation until, you know, only the last hundred years, really. You know, classical performers were, were, were fabulous improvisers. You know, so I think the, the idea of improvisation being, uh, you know, jazz having a lockout on that is, is, it's a bit askew in terms of the reality of totality of music. But, I mean, I love, I love improvised music because it really gives rise to this sort of moment of the, of the now. And, and the sort of whole tradition that is kind of wrapped up in expressing the now, but also maybe there are compositional elements that then, you know, are, more time-honored way of constructing ideas that at least steer people in ideas to say, hey, let's talk about this. And then it's sort of presented with some options that you're going to talk about, but there may be some parameters. And so there's a little bit of room for everyone in a way. So there's a there's an opportunity for, I guess, a, 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 democratic, a democratic kind of dialogue, whereas perhaps there's less of that in in musical areas where everything is to be presented precisely as the composer intended. So my final question to you is this. Everyone has a perception of who you are, your family, your friends, your fans, your colleagues, but you know who you are. Tell me, who do you think you are? Uh, I think I'm uh, the eternal optimist who's constantly questing for the better pathway. I'm always looking to recycle and optimize. I like that. That's a great answer. It's a great way to wrap everything up. Andy, thank you for taking some time out. I really appreciate you giving me your time. And we had some bumps here, but everything worked out. Man, thank you very much. Good. Good. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for your interest in it, too. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Andy for his time, his music, and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.